Last week on the podcast, it was a complete dump of gear information, lots of technicking, technical, technicking, technicking mumbo jumbo. So I brought somebody on that doesn't know about gear or care. Doesn't know any of that. But uh, has a lot to say. Things that help me in my kind of creative pursuits sometimes when you chat. So I thought it'd be good to bring you into a wider conversation. This is Pete Forrester. Hi, everybody. We are in uh, in his office in New York, which is a very echoey room. <laughs> Because it's very old. Sorry about that. But it's in- incredibly beautiful, and the chairs are squeaky. But hopefully it adds some, some, a char- lot of character. some character to the show. Yeah. And so your list of things that you do in life is, is long and varied. Yes. And I, I couldn't possibly describe it. So can you describe some of the, the interesting things you work on? Of course. So during most days, I work at an artist agency as the editorial content manager guy. Um, and basically my job is I, I work with agents, uh, who represent artists like photographers, illustrators, motion, CGI. Um, and our, those artists create commercial work or, or shoot for the cover of any particular week's time or vanity fair or whatever. Um, and it's my job to sort of tell the world about the projects that our artists do and frame them in a way that is beneficial to our artists and to the business. Could you take that opportunity to tell us about an interesting one right now? I mean, this is like really amazing work. Like the people yeah. you work with are incredibly talented. World-class. Yeah, world-class photographers. So and, and a story that um, will be going up on the blog today, as soon as we're done here, mm-hmm. um, is one of our CGI artists, this guy David McLeod, um, was one of a number of CGI artists who created the new, what's called iDents. Um, for BBC Two. So when you're watching, say, ABC, mm-hmm. and they're like, you're watching ABC, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, BBC just commissioned a whole bunch of new ones uh, that are CGI. Um, and David did two of them. And they are, David's are particularly amazing. And then when you look at the whole list of them, um, they're kind of disturbing, kind of off putting. Some of them feel sort of animalian, but it's all CGI and it's going to be seen by tens of millions of people because it's going to be everyone who's watching BBC two is going to be watching this stuff. Um, And so if you were to, if you were to think about it and be like, Oh, that's really cool. Let me see who that was. Mm -hmm. And like, you might go to BBC two's website, you might find the press release and then David McCloyd's name will be on the list. Right. What I do is, talk to David, get quotes from BBC and sort of show our audience and our clients, here's how these things are made. This is the thought that goes into them. This is why these are the shape. Um, And give a window into the back end of the artistic process for two reasons, so that other artists um, can get that window, but also so uh, future clients recognize, oh, these artists aren't just people that are supposed to execute something they're actually creative partners Mm -hmm. and so rather than hiring an agency to just find somebody who's going to take the picture that that we want um the brand like the bbc2 can go directly to our artist and say hey we're thinking about this you as a creative master as an expert at your craft what do you think we should do Mm -hmm. because we find that when brands do come to us first um, the creative, the, the results end up being deeper and richer and more expressive and cheaper. Right. So my job is to sort of reframe that conversation. I think there can be a challenge for any creative as well to put themselves last. If you don't have somebody else telling your story, it can be hard to get around 
to telling it yourself of like, this is what I'm all about. This is what motivated me on certain projects. This is Absolutely. how I work. Um, every, yeah. Everybody designs their business card after all their clients or, re- sure. or updates their website last or right. that. I mean, that's my personal yeah, goal and, right and, now. And part of that is, you know, I spend all day talking to artists, interviewing them so that I can take what their story is mm-hmm. and turn it into something that an audience is going to want to read. And, you know, there's a reason if you're a photographer, there's a reason you're a photographer because that is the best way you know how to tell a story. But when it comes time to telling different parts of your story, a writer's going to be better at doing that. And so the reason I operate as sort of that filter or that conduit is because our artists are not, they're not speakers. And so they've done their best work. And now I'm going to do the work to help that, that work find a different audience that it wasn't intended to. And that makes sense. It makes total sense. Of course it the is. Same, the same way, like, I don't think I would be the best person to, I shouldn't take a self portrait Mm -hmm. because my ex that's not my expertise, but I could write it. I see this come in for uh, like when, whenever we're working for smaller clients, like like say local businesses, anybody out there working for local businesses probably run into the situation where you're asked to shoot a video. Like, great. This sounds like something I can do. Technically I can completely pull this off and you quickly realize they're coming to you with the most, rough of outlines and there is not going to be anybody to write a script or to develop the narrative on screen. You're just going to show up at this business and just start shooting. Right. Cause that's all. That's the, that's the know. way they think because you know, there's, there's this mystique that I find so tedious that, that an artist is a, is a magician when there, there, there is yeah. beautiful work yeah. that comes out, but it's not, it's not magic. Right. It's the, it's the result of, a, of, you know, yeah. just uh, because you don't understand it doesn't mean uh, that they can literally do anything at right, any time. Right. right. Yeah. And so like, so for, for people I, now, now I'm thinking of the, like, there's a, there's what, you know, there's what you don't know. And then there's what you don't know. You don't know, which is the biggest piece of the pie that that business owner may be like, oh, well, they'll come in and they'll figure it out or like they'll just do it because yeah, there's the it'll, thing. It'll happen. And so th- the question is like, so what do you do in those situations? Yeah. And well, what do I do? I do um, a lesser video than I could have. The, the work comes out worse. And the times that I find it goes the best. So, so currently I'm actually working on a project for a restaurant that has been expanding really quickly and they're hoping to go national in Canada and they're coming to the States right away. So they're all at once, they're getting huge and they want some really professional uh, video work to represent them. And what they came to me with is they love chef's table and they're like, we would like basically a little documentary piece, like showing what we do. And I'm like, I can do that. There's no, there's nothing fake. There's no actors or models or anything like that. I just can arrive and tell their, let them tell their story and present it. And that worked very well. And we're kind of given enough time and enough resources to make it great. Uh, compared to other times that it'll just be like, we don't know what we want. I'm not comfortable. The owner will tell us they're not comfortable on camera and neither is any other staff really. And they don't have any budget for models. And <laughs> I mean, I think just the truth of it is that the, the project will always come out a little bit worse. So you do you, sure. the best you can. I mean, right. you need to give them their money's worth and right. do, uh, but but it also is, it's hard to turn that into something that I usually feel proud of Yeah, because I, I don't have time to, to like really deeply developed a concept and a script right. and a, you know, uh, we're, we're a very small team. It's just 
on you and I most of the time. Yeah. So, and I think that that is sort of you. You have to balance a couple different things here, right? It's like first of all, I don't mind creating work that I'm not proud of because I'm not going to promote it. Yeah. And if a job is for money, then the job is for money. If you get if you are in a job that is like they don't know what they want and they're giving me free range, then that's like go crazy and do whatever the fuck you want. Yeah. And then ideally they're going to give you exactly what the parameters are, the timeline for me it's like what is your word count, what's the ex- what's the usage. Um and then if it's good it's good and if it's not fine. Yeah. Cuz the you know, don't let well, be the end and of, that's uh, something perfect. that yeah. can it take a little while for people to learn too, is that you, you don't have to show everything. You know, I didn't figure that out for a little while, but all that matters when you're trying to get work is showing the, the best that you have. Yeah. Actually something I'd love to hear a bit about from you is advice to new creators or young photographers, video filmmakers in developing a portfolio. What do they present to the world? What do you I mean, you're, you're kind of hiring at a higher level, but like, what should people be presenting to all of their potential clients? Do you think what are some general tips? So I think that, um, the idea of a static portfolio is so antiquated. Mm -hmm. I think every time you approach a client, if you're approaching an agency, all of it, everything needs to be tailored for your audience. And that comes down to, I mean, that's also the way I approach everything just as a writer. If I'm sending an email or if I'm going to send somebody, if something isn't posted, if it's a writing sample, I may tweak it knowing who's going to be reading it. So if you are looking, if, if, if you're approaching a client, you have to know what that client is and and by is I mean like what is their DNA? What is that client's uh, perspective of the world, and where do they see themselves fitting into that world? Um, and you can get that from visuals, you can get that from writing, you can get that from their social, all of that. And the best thing to do is just consume and then trust yourself. I think you really have to know your audience, and you can do that through visual, but um, you know, looking at their photos and their videos. But also, it's just as important to look at their copy, what's on social media, and really trust yourself. Consume everything that you can about them, and then once you understand who they are and what they're looking for and what they're trying to do, mm. I think is the biggest piece. What do you think this brand or this client is trying to do? then you have to look at your own work as an audience, as an outsider. Nothing is precious anymore. And you say, what in my portfolio fits with what they want Mm -hmm. to be doing? What are they doing? What do they want to be doing? And then the last bit is, what can I do for them that they're either failing at or they could do better with a way that I think about this, like something we try to solve this problem with is well often create little micro sites for clients that they can't really tell are targeted to them. Sure. But they'll be asking about, I mean, a funny one was when there was an architecture client, which isn't something we traditionally shoot. And we were like, well, we have some architecture photos. Let's dig all those up. Yeah. And then we ran around town and just shot more. Yeah. And put them together and we're like stallman.com slash architecture. I'm not sure if it's still there, but then we sent that to the client. And And I think that that impulse and that behavior 
on, and this is, this is going to sound a little crass, but I think that that's the difference between a winner and a loser. For me, every time that I've been up for an important job, I'll take the next two to three hours to create new content if I have to, make sure that everything is paired the way it needs to be, uh, maybe change the colors on my resume or whatever to more fit in line with them. Mm. And that is always, that's going to be the difference between getting hired or not. I have been the middleman or the receiving end of people applying for jobs that, you know, the cover letter isn't, isn't even tailored towards the company that they're writing towards. And it's like, it seems like a detail or something that's like, oh, this isn't worth it or whatever, but the payoff is gigantic. Such a common one is when you see font issues in emails that reveal copy pasting. Um, oh yeah. Clean paste, clean paste everything, no matter what you're doing. What's the shortcut to do that? I just realized there was one recently. I think it's like command command shift V. Yeah. Yeah, So worth it. I actually tried reassigning it to be my default, (laughs) but it creates, it creates some (laughs) bugs in different places. Yeah. Yeah, But, uh, but yeah, I, so I'll at least clean it by like, I moved into simple text and just like scrape it away because it's never worth leaving or like, uh, there's something that's a link accidentally inside of it or, yeah. All those little things matter way it's more so than you think. Important. Yeah, because it, because of what it reveals is it's like even if you are paying attention to other details, it's revealing that you're not paying attention to all of them. Yeah. And when you're applying for a job or you're trying to reintroduce yourself to a new client or something, that's what sticks out because mm-hmm. there's somebody, there's a Tyler out there who took the couple hours extra to go out and shoot those photos. Yeah. And it, it it's really, it's like, when I think about, I mean, I've been unemployed for long stretches of time and I know that like, I, if you're not going out and doing that, I know what you're doing. You're sitting around <laughs> like getting angry on the internet yeah. or watching TV. Like it's like, go out and do it. And then mm. if it doesn't work now, you've created this microsite that you can now approach new architecture clients, which was not something you were pursuing in the first place. And now you have a whole new potential revenue. Yeah. This is a long-term investment for you as well. Now you've already done the work. So we, we also cut you off right at the beginning of saying (laughs) the different things that you did. Yeah. It was a very worthy tangent. And I think we could honestly just keep talking about that the whole time, but yeah, but you do create other kinds of things. Yeah. So I also, um, I freelance, uh, write, I'm a freelance contributor, um, for a number of websites, uh, mostly right now for Esquire, um, in terms of writing mm. Esquire and then uh, high society. And then I have a lot of stuff that was on complex and soul collector and then other sites under the complex umbrella that have since been reabsorbed by complex.com. Um, and then a bunch of other ones that I can't even think to name. Mostly that's through sneakers and style, but as somebody who is, I, it's the sneakers and style vertical. So I'm writing about sneakers and, Streetwear. And this is how we met, by the way, which was yeah. at a Canada Goose press trip. Right. So one of the things that has made me unique in this space is I am generally exhausted by sneakers and style. So when I write about them, I'm writing about a deeper story. So it would be like being able to sit down with Danny Reese, the CEO of Canada Goose, for half an hour and getting like what is the real story of Danny Reese, you know? Um, and to me, that's the more interesting way to talk about a jacket company because we could, you know, 
there's seven people chained to desks at every one of these publishers who's writing like, oh, this is the new jacket and these are the colors and this is the material and blah, blah, blah. Mm. Like, that's so boring. Um, and it's the same thing with every shoe. Copy so, pasting press releases. and Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so part of my, a lot of my creative process and a lot of my professional life is I get bored really easily and I am incapable of doing things that I'm bored with. So... I did, you know, I did those kinds of stories for a while. I worked at, uh, I did the weekend news for Complex, and it was like I had to do seven posts a day, one an hour, and like there's not seven new sneaker things every day. <laughs> so a lot of it was yeah. just like, I know how to put together a word salad, mm-hmm. um, but it's super boring. And so that to me is like another, an extension, if we're talking to people who are just at the beginning of, of what they're doing, um, recognize, you know, where you're able to get money and then the rest of it, just keep yourself excited. Right. And as soon as you're bored by something, if it's not making you money, let it go. Well, and I'm going to have some links in the show notes to some like the Esquire piece. I'll, I'll make okay, sure yeah. so people can check it out. And then you also are on camera sometimes. Yeah. So, so that's as a writer. And then, um, I host a show for high snobiety about sneakers called from the ground up. Um, we're in our second season that, the process of finding that show took about like six months because we tried a bunch of different other versions of the show and we've landed on this right now. And again, it's sort of like, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of people involved because it's a, it's a show. Um, so, uh, there's producers, our, our main producer, and then, um, the director of the department and then all the editorial people on the other side. But what I'm always trying to fight for is there's so many sneaker shows already on YouTube and and other places on the internet. And they all sort of have the same conversations. (laughs) It's a bunch of, um, white guys who are boring talking for a long time, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. about the most minutia of like, what were the releases this week? Or like, what is this really bizarre story that this shoe is connected to? I just don't find, I just don't think that's interesting. Yeah. Well, your show is where I've learned most things I know about sneaker culture. Cause which is great. I don't, I don't care about sneakers. I mean, I wear them. I'm wearing Converse right now. Um, it's just, it's not very interesting to me, but when you can make it interesting, that's, Sorry, sorry that the air conditioner went on. Um, I'll take full responsibility that's because okay. it's my I've, office. I've got a filter for that. Okay. Hopefully it'll mostly disappear. But um, like an example, I mean, I don't know how you feel about his writing, but like Malcolm Gladwell is a person who has capitalized very well off of, he's making, making a dirty face over there. <laughs> I, know, I know he's not a writer's writer, but um, that ability to like take any random story sure. and make everybody get interested is an asset. I call him the anecdote king. So what, do, there's a few people that really dislike Malcolm Gladwell that I like. Or th- like, I like your opinions. I value your opinions. What do you dislike about Malcolm Gladwell? Um, I think that Malcolm Gladwell, oh, I really shouldn't. Do he doesn't this. listen to the show, but he might, but I really shouldn't do this. <laughs> um, I am generally suspicious of people who build their careers based on delivering the opinions of other people through a highly manipulated context. I am far more interested in original contributions. And if your contribution is, I got a lot of other people's contributions together, I think you're an editor. And I think that's fine. It's great. 
I just get suspicious when it's anecdotal evidence brought together to then parade around as um, something that doesn't always stand up to scrutiny. I mean, right. like this, the 10,000 hours. Yeah. That's like, the, that's what I was we all know. It's bullshit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I mean the, the, as somebody who really enjoys his work, like I really like it and I can see that criticism to me. The issue becomes that he's almost so successful that these ideas become mainstream. If he bases a book yeah. around an idea, it becomes uh, received wisdom that we all just start saying 10,000 hours right. and we start saying tipping point and there's all these little blinking. Yeah. Like right. these, these things it, be- become part of our culture and we take it as truth because we, we kind of forgot that it was even from Malcolm Gladwell or where we heard this in the first place. Uh, but there isn't that level of scrutiny. There isn't that right. moment where we wonder, Oh wait, was this based on real science or just right. that he talked to a specific. And that's, that's where my issue is. And that's the reason I call him the anecdote King is because it's all anecdotal. Mm-hmm. And so if we, if if we step away from it and we say, I like, I believe this because it's my experience or I believe this because it, it feels true to me recognizing that it's all based on anecdotes, then I'm good with it. But right. the fact that people are sort of, and, and what bothers me is that, is the way that he, he presents himself as an expert in all of these fields. Mm-hmm. When really, I think that the most gracious way for him to go about doing it is to say, I've talked to a lot of people, this is my understanding based on these other people's experiences. Right. But instead... That's not the way he does it. You know, he, 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 and and it makes sense. To me, it it always goes back to um, Elizabeth Gilbert's TED talk about the, where genius lives and how the ancient Greek, the ancient Greeks believed that demons lived in your walls and they were the ones who whispered your ideas. And if they were good, they were good. And if they were bad, it's not really your fault. You just had sort of like a shitty demon. Um, And that, that the name, the demon eventually translated into what we call genius um, and then during the Renaissance, the genius came out of the wall and went into the human. Um, and now we see people as being geniuses or idiots. Um, and so when somebody has great ideas or delivers a great idea, uh, like Malcolm Gladwell has done as a culture, we now put that, we, we put the prestige of the idea into him when right. really we should put it in the idea. Yeah. It's like, and and it also, I mean, this ends up opening into a much larger issue. What it's like: Do we discount Pablo Picasso's paintings because he was a serial sexual assaulter? You know, it's like, where does genius live? Right. I don't know. That's a big question. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, there was another. There was another topic that I wanted to touch on with you before you. Uh... And the, and the, I do more things too. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> we'll get back to your list. We'll, we'll we'll be finishing this interview just by saying the last thing that you do. Um, but. Uh, Christopher Nolan is somebody I've talked about on this podcast quite a bit. And, and I, I you wanted, and I have talked about quite a bit, but and, not yeah, on so this podcast. We, we might have gone through it all uh, personally, um, but I, I almost wanted to get you on that episode to hear a, a smart person's critique of Christopher Nolan. Like somebody that loves film and could possibly dislike anything that Christopher Nolan well, does. And, you know, part of my distaste for a lot of his more recent work is because I love some of his older work mm-hmm. deeply. After this, I'll get you to talk about something you like, so it doesn't just sound like you hate everything. Well, let me well let me start with the Prestige okay. because I love the Prestige. I think the Prestige is an incredible movie. 
Um, and The Prestige came out, I think, after Batman Begins, but before The Dark Knight. So Christopher Nolan was given the budget, and he had the relationships to create something amazing, but he hadn't been so successful that nobody was editing him anymore. Mm. And I think that Christopher Nolan has really amazing ideas, but he just needs an editor because he's not willing to edit himself. And editing yourself is, to me, from in a creative life, half the work if not more. Others would say, especially when it comes to like writing a novel, that revision is 90% of the process. Sure. I mean, just back to portfolios for one second, uh, yeah. that's most of what a good portfolio is, is not putting in your bad work. Right, sure. And then it's also, and then once you're carrying that around, you realize like, oh, most people stop looking after slide 15. So <laughs> right, that's all yeah. that matters. Yeah, it doesn't need to just be, the uh, best 15. So a three-hour portfolio. Yeah, is, yeah. yeah that, I mean, that's another thing. Uh, one of the things that we've been learning through looking at the analytics on our site that has portfolios that have hundreds of images from, um, I want to say almost 100 different artists, people don't look past slide 15. Yeah. So if whatever you have past 16... Just let it go. But then also mm-hmm. knowing that you can, depending on what, what your client is, you know, just let me pick the top 16, put those at the front, and then the top 16 right. for that client that I know that that client is looking for or wants or is a part of their identity. Wait, I, okay, I'm totally derailing Sorry. this Christopher Nolan yeah. thing. We're back to, but no, 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 <laughs> but I have, a, I have this very specific question about, build, about building a, a general portfolio. So like the landing page for a photographer, like everybody comes to Stallman.com to hire us for photo work. Should we break down categories of different types of photography and you can click into different galleries or is it better to have one amazing 15 image gallery right up front? And so we call a a general portfolio, a general portfolio. Mm -hmm. Um, And then what I would do in the general portfolio is to me, PR marketing, anytime you're reaching out to the world is all about aspirationalism. So, Whatever your front image is, if you're not putting it towards a particular client, it should be your version of what you want to do. So if you are currently a portrait photographer, but you want to be a fashion photographer, put your best fashion photo first, because you have to teach clients what to hire you for. Then have a general portfolio, Focus on those top 15 and then whatever you want to do after that. And then have a bunch of things that say architecture or beauty, whatever you're strong at. But then also, what are you getting the calls for? And uh, talk to your people in the industry and figure out where's the money. What are people hiring for? Um, And then create that. A common mistake I see with this is how much people focus on their landscape or travel work. Because especially when you're starting out, because you haven't done that many jobs. So you've shot just beautiful things you saw in the world, right. but that market is doesn't exist. It's stock photography typically, right. like a lot of that stuff. And if it does exist, licensed. they're not paying you. Yeah, yeah. So um, it, that's that's not what's going to get you hired. No, uh, I want you to finish your Christopher Nolan idea. Yeah. So <laughs> Christopher Nolan, um, right, it, it's editing to me yeah. because I think that as soon as we get past the dark night and you don't mean cutting the film, right? No, you no, mean like I mean, editing, big picture editing. Yeah. 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 As soon as we get past the dark night, his ideas to me go off the rail. Ideas are, I mean, that goes back to the genius, but ideas are these beautiful, amorphous, tantalizing things. And you have to recognize that not idea, not every idea is going to speak 
the way that you want it is it not every idea is going to say what you want it to say right <laughs> and so for me my biggest issue with christopher nolan is his the way that he plays with time uh often counteracts narrative structure um and makes it undercuts what he's trying to do in his stories and it ends up being that his priority is to make statements or play with the way that film works with time rather than do what it a filmmaker's job is to do what all of our jobs is to do, which is to tell a compelling story. That's the job. Mm -hmm. And then you can put everything on top of it. So when I look at say inception, inception has a host of issues, um, not least of which it internally conflicts its own rules, which is annoying. Um, but I, I love, there are certain movies that I love that uh, go against their own rules, but the problem to me with inception is as you tell a narrative, the stakes should raise. Things should become more immediate, more important as time goes on, because that's how you create conflict. Yeah, storytelling is you know, right. sure. a climax. Yeah. Christopher Nolan set up for himself within the structure of what the dream worlds are, that as time went on and they went deeper into the dreams, time was worth less. And so, yes, they pull out guns, and yes, people start shooting at each other, which... If you're having a conflict in a dream, why is it a bunch of guys with guns? Why isn't it like, like Liter I said? Literally like, every dream I have looks like uh, <laughs> the last action hero. <laughs> right. And so like, and then I have this whole other thing where I think he really wanted to tell a story about the subconscious rather than dreams. And then he, I don't know. I do know, but we're going to see. He tied himself up in creating this, this logical world that ends up counteracting the best way to tell a story. And I think the same thing, the same thing happens in interstellar where he has these big ideas and because he's not at a place where he has to bring other creatives in to help him solve these problems, mm -hmm. he just solves them in an intellectual way, which is not always the way that you want to tell a story. It's like the George Lucas problem, but with somebody much smarter. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, it's a George Lucas problem with somebody in a suit. Yeah. And then, when I talked to you about this yesterday, you brought up Memento because Memento really messes with time. Yeah, and and you had better things to say about yeah, Memento. Yeah, I because yeah. So like when you start critiquing that, oh, I don't like the way you use time. I think the the first reaction. Oh, is Oh, like, Kirk is the other one. Sorry. Go. That, of course he he messes. That's his whole thing. Of he's going to mess with time. So you're just missing the point. I think that's maybe what people would hear you saying. Yeah, that, but, and, and that's, but, a, that's I mean, a fair Obviously, response. you realize it's intentional and that right. you know, yeah, yeah. it's I'm experimental saying, in many right. ways. I don't yeah. think that like Christopher Nolan <laughs> yeah. thinks that he's doing these things. Yeah, can you believe it? Memento was accidentally <laughs> backwards. What was right, he right. thinking? Yeah. Right, and it, it, it's the same with Dunkirk where he takes three narratives and they all take place over different amounts of times, but he stretches them out to be equal. And it ends up just being very confusing. Mm -hmm. I immediately knew what was happening. I was I was pretty confused for it. I didn't know that was what he meant by the time structure for a little while. I didn't catch on to like, oh, this is this is where we're going. I got it pretty quick, yeah. and I was still as I was watching it. I was like, this is not the best way to do this. Yeah. There's got to be a better way. And then so the question is, what about Memento? And my response is, Memento works. Because he plays with the time on top of creating a solid narrative structure. Things mean more as time goes on in Memento. The stakes continue to raise because we're learning information in a different way. Mm -hmm. 
Whereas in Inception, the the stakes just aren't raised. They're they're raised externally, like, and I I'm doing air quotes here because the the way that he raises the stakes is by throwing a bunch of guys with guns. Right, the explosions get bigger. Which is not, it, it just, I'm mad at Inception because it's not the movie it could be. Mm. Um, it doesn't live up to its promise in the way that the Prestige and Memento right. did. And so my anchor is not at Christopher Nolan, and I don't think that he's a bad filmmaker. I just wish that his ideas that I think are really interesting and could be something great fall flat because I don't think that the the execution of those ideas was as considered as his intelligence could let them be. I would love to argue about it and tell you you're wrong, but I spent two episodes uh, <laughs> telling you telling every while of Christopher Nolan. So uh, instead of that, maybe um, tell me about a filmmaker you do like. Oh, this is going to be so... What's the word? I can never think of this word. Profound. No, the opposite. <laughs> So basic. Everybody's going to hate me, and I shouldn't even say it. Um, I love Quentin Tarantino. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah, I mean, you're, a lot of people are going to say that. Too. Yeah. I, I'm saying Christopher Nolan. Right, like okay, okay, okay. Um, I'm trying to think of, like, when I when I get really excited that somebody's on a project, um, would be like a Dan Harmon. And Dan Harmon, I mean, here's a guy who uses the hero's journey in every single thing that he does. You know, I have a deep dislike for Lost, but anytime J.J. Abrams is attached to something, I'm interested, I'll take a look. Mm-hmm. It's sort of one of those like big eye rolls about Pete Forrester that I have said since I went to art school and art camp, I don't like painters, I like paintings. So I'm ready, willing, and able to have a director's name pull me into the theater, but they'll start from scratch. I mean... <laughs> Ryan Coogler has done amazing things. Get Out was unbelievable um, from Jordan Peele, and I can't wait to see that the follow-up to that because it showed such a progressive, sophisticated understanding and handling of what that genre should be. Not even could be, what it should be. I mean, if you put Get Out next to Hereditary and, and it follows and, like... I'm on cloud nine. So that's the sort of stuff that interests, give me anything from a two four. Like that's, that's what I'm interested in. Right, well, I'm, I'm also conscious of your time. So let's try to finish your biography before oh, we, uh... obviously thinking about storytelling in this way, doesn't come from me writing about seekers mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and writing about art, <laughs> artists. I write narratives myself. Uh, I just finished my first, um, novel and then, uh, the last time I saw you, I was working on an animated comedy pilot, but now I'm working on a uh, live-action live action drama pilot for a network. And I, I'm not going to give anything away. No spoilers um, here. I told Tyler about it. What did you think? Uh, well, I don't want to... That, that's what we talked you about. You just tell me if it's good or not. But we had the conversation <laughs> last night that, yeah, good or not is the biggest spoiler of all. So, you know... Because so it's bad. So Tyler doesn't like so it. So you should just watch it without any preamble. <laughs> No when, questions it's, when it's on NBC, when it's, yeah, and after it's after yeah. it's filmed, yeah. yeah. Um, but what is something that you think normal storytellers like me that are maybe telling more like smaller, very small stories, and they're based on reality? How could we do that better? What what can make any vlog or even Instagram stories, whatever? Like, what are things that people get wrong all the time when they're publishing their own kind of content? If you're bored, I'm bored. 
if you are putting something in that is a pain to edit and you're not thrilled by the results, just get rid of it. Hmm. Trust your audience. Your audience is smarter than you think most of the time. And so if you feel like something requires a 45 second explanation, it probably only takes a 10 second explanation Mm -hmm. and fiddle with it. Talk to yourself in the shower, uh, have those fake conversation. I I'm talking, this is, I'm going to sound insane. I'd say 25 to 35% of the time that I'm home, I'm talking out loud about stories or conversations that I need to have. If it's a pitch or um, a conversation that I need to have with somebody at work that I need to convince them with, that's the way to work through a narrative is you have to be your own audience. And my expectation is always that my audience is going to hate everything that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And so if my audience is going to hate it anyway, I, that means that I'm going to keep everything that I love that I think is crucial and is really fun for me. And I'm just going to get rid of the rest. One thing that frustrated me was posting a video lately about how people can create better Instagram stories. Okay. And uh, you know, I was basically saying like, it's worth editing a bit and like trimming things down and the reason for that is the pe- people watching are spending the same time. Like, it's real time. Yeah. If they watched it, that's how long it took for that moment to happen. And it can be short. It's only 15 seconds. 15 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> it's only 15 seconds long. But if you're asking somebody to focus on you for 15 seconds, you owe them a little effort. Yeah. You, you, sh- you, it, you should try to make it interesting. And that's just a really small example of it. But I feel like some people feel... They, you can end up with an attitude that people should absorb your content just because it exists, no. because you bothered to make it. Nobody cares. But you have to give them a great reason to watch it. Uh, it makes me think of that uh, a conversation that Oprah and Maya Angelou had, and Oprah was working on making some choice. And she went to Maya Angelou and said, well, what are people going to think of me if I do this? And Maya Angelou goes, baby, nobody's thinking about you. If you don't have me in the first couple seconds, I am gone. And I think that this works for all storytelling, written, visual, even down to photo, is that you lead with the best stuff. And then if you're worried that there's not going to be enough afterwards, then go and make more. You cannot, filler is not a thing, right? Mm -hmm. You don't. There's no filler photos in your portfolio. There's no filler seconds in your video. There's no filler words in my writing. If you're thinking about adding filler, just make it shorter instead. Make it shorter or go out and make more. Yeah. If it's not the best thing that you can create, unless someone's paying you for exactly, and you're giving them exactly what they're asking for, just don't do it. Yeah. Because it's not worth your time. And like I said at the, at the beginning, if you're bored, I'm bored. This conversation could go in a thousand more places. Yeah. There's more to talk about. But now we've introduced you, so hey. when I invite you back next time... Whenever you come to New York. Everybody knows, uh, ever knows, knows what you do. So, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure you will. But uh, not, not as far north as you went last time. Um, people should check out your Instagram. It's okay. There's, there's cool stuff there. I, I think it's pretty fun. Pete underscore Forrester, and that's Forrester with one R. And also your YouTube show. Uh, so it's From the Ground Up. You can just Google it, From the Ground Up. Um, and High Snobiety, which is... H-I-G-H-S-N-O-B-I-E-T-Y. Awesome. Thanks for coming on, Pete. Thank you so much for having me. This week, I'd like to welcome a new sponsor to the podcast. You may be aware of them if you've watched my YouTube videos, and that's Cronaby. You may know by now that I am a big fan of watches. 
Those can be smartwatches or especially mechanical watches. But Chronobee does this really great job of blending both worlds together. If you check out my YouTube video, you can see where I went on a tour of their headquarters in Sweden. And this is where all of the design happens. And what they're really aiming to do is create a truly premium watch that has all of the connected features you'd expect in 2018. We'll talk some more about some of the specific features in future episodes. But one thing I love is that overall, these features don't take over the most important thing that a watch does, and that's tell the time. So because there's a fully mechanical face, every time I look down instantly, I right away know what time it is. This is something that's still missing from the Apple Watch. And it just gives me this greater sense of connection to what I'm doing in real life when I'm not looking down at a screen. I already look down at screens often enough in a day. Sometimes it's nice to just look down at some very carefully designed metal hands moving in a circle. They really are designed to be as fashionable as a traditional watch, and people really will mistake this for a classic mechanical watch. It's not obvious. You can wear it with a suit. And I know the people behind this have both great ideas, great design taste, and are building a great product. So go to chronobee.com to find out more. Or of course, you can also check out my YouTube videos where I've, I've covered them a little bit in the past. Thank you so much to Chronobee for supporting the show. That was great having Pete on. Honestly, you have to go check out his work because he's just a smart guy. He's a great writer. And um, I'm just grateful to have him come on and uh, get me off track from just talking about tech all the time. I can easily be distracted by the tools that we use to create stuff because it's fun. Um, you know, I, there's a lot of people that discourage you from focusing too much on the technology or the cameras or the computers. And I'm not going to be that person. I encourage getting into it. I think that it can help you create better products or uh, realize your vision better if you understand the technology that you're working with. So I absolutely think it's worth diving deep into the tech that we use to create our art. But it's also worth reminding ourselves, what, what are we doing here? Why are we doing it? And how can we do it better? And the details of that process are really important to me. And I want to make sure that I don't get lost in that in future episodes. So hopefully we'll be talking more about the why behind the how. Is that a phrase? Does that make sense? Well, for the rest of the episode here, I want to answer some of your questions. I reached out on Instagram. It's my favorite way to get questions from you guys. And I love doing this because you just give me a bunch of ideas of what to talk about when I can't think of anything. But there's a lot of good stuff in here. I'm excited to get started. So forgive me for doing a bad job of reading all your names, but a lot of them aren't written to be pronounced easily because there's words mashed together. So the first question comes from Jake Tazreter. What are your top three most used lenses in terms of focal length? I really like that this question's asked about in terms of focal length. I think that honestly, most often the, the most important things to consider in a lens are the numbers, which isn't the case with cameras. Like when I'm looking at camera bodies, it's not necessarily the specs on the box that determine most of the, the key things about it. I kind of have the opinion that with lenses, the most important things are generally on the box. I'm not really opposed to cheap lenses. I think they usually look pretty great and will get you most of the return that you're looking for. So for example, the Sony lens that I've been using the, the most since I bought it, the, the lens that lives on it almost all the time is the 28 millimeter 2.0. It is a relatively 
pretty cheap lens for Sony. It doesn't feel super expensive. It's very, it's a very simple lens, but it, it's gone really far. And I don't think people notice that it's not coming from something far more expensive. Uh, another one that I've been liking lately is the SLR Magic 35mm 1.2. That's a $300 lens, uh, incredibly cheap for what it is. It's all manual focus, and um, it's not crazy sharp. There is definite vignetting when it's wide open at 1.2. Like, it has all these technical issues, but I find that's not what people end up seeing. What they end up seeing is the 1.2 you know, the incredibly shallow depth field in the background, and just the overall effect of the lens becomes the most important thing. So when you are thinking about spending more on a lens, what you're really spending the money on is both performance in poor conditions. So that means that you're never going to get vignetting in a sky when you don't want it, which you, you, you never want that. That's not a good look. Or also just extreme sharpness, when you zoom all the way in. So for photography, if things are being printed for a client, you don't want that soft look of a cheaper lens. There is one thing, now that I think about one kind of unforgivable thing on cheap lenses, I really do not like chromatic aberration. If you don't know what that is already, it's the purple and green fringing that uh, appears around high contrast edges, like edges that would be the the perceived sharpness of an image. That looks terrible. Like, that can give away a cheap lens even in a thumbnail. Uh, So if you have a cheap lens that is doing that, get rid of it. Um, My cheap lenses that I'm into, none of them do that. The SLR Magic doesn't have issues, doesn't have serious issues with it. Like, it's present, uh, but it's it's controlled. Uh, Same with, uh, so for Canon, the 40mm 2.8 is very affordable, and I love that. It's fit... All, pretty much all of the 50 millimeters from the major manufacturers uh, also have pretty high quality. And um, anyway, back to the original question, my favorite focal lengths. Uh, okay, I'm going to have to include 28 millimeters in there because that's what I've used so much of from the Sony. It is wide, but it is bef- it does not distort. It's kind of before the ultra wide, uh, so it can usually fit everything I need in it. It looks like a a cell phone width. I mean, this is why iPhones and Android phones and so many other phones have uh, used this focal length for a long time is because it's just a really good balance. Um, It's kind of interesting, actually, that the new iPhone's a little wider because it's slightly... That starts getting a little too wide, I think, for a really standard lens. Like, 28 millimeters is a really good walking around focal length. After that, I, I do love 35. It's a nice balance. Generally, I've been on the wider side lately. So, I mean, what I'm almost going to say is like 28, 35, 50. That doesn't really make sense because they're so similar. You could, I think, take your pick between 35 and 28, depending on what you're shooting. But 35 starts to, it starts to give you a bit of depth of field. It's hard to get much blur at 28 millimeters. Things really, subjects really have to be close to the camera. Whereas at 35, they start to blur more. And obviously at 50, they, they blur even more. And uh, I'd include 50 in the list because there are so many great lenses in the 50 millimeter range. I don't actually find to be the most useful focal length anymore. I don't know. I also go through phases. Like I used it exclusively for a trip, I guess for several months once when I was traveling around. I only brought a 50 millimeter and it was great at the time. So I think a lot of this depends on the mood you're in, what you're shooting lately, what you want to shoot more of, and like just where you're going will determine the lenses that you like. And then also, I mean, the year, uh, I guess last year is when I started going a little wider, but before that I was using the 70 to 200 
a lot. Like that was my primary lens. And I was shooting it at, you know, maybe 135 or 150 a lot of the time. So again, it, it depends on your mood. Totally depends on what you're shooting. There is not a best. There is just most suitable for different occasions and most suitable to your taste and your style. Sam Sam YVR writes, is there such thing as too much computational photography? Yes, <laughs> I've, I've definitely seen this a few times. Um, it's only recent that computational photography has gotten good enough to use. So for example, the 5D Mark III introduced inbuilt HDR where it would stitch things together and it looked really terrible. Um, it's unusable. I, nev I never use it and you never hear about anybody using it because the computation was bad. It, it made bad choices. So I, I don't have a lot to say about this, but yes, a lot of brands have got this wrong. They need to have good taste to be able to make computational photography look good. But it seems like we're getting to a point where a lot of the biggest brands are doing it right. So, you know, I, I'm happy with what both Google and Apple and Samsung have been doing lately. Marco Abrams is asking if there's any tips for reaching out to clients when you're just getting started freelancing as a photographer. I would suggest, okay, this, I don't know if that, this answers your question exactly. It's just a thought that's been in my mind recently, and I know it applies. When people are starting out, there's often this concern about how do you start charging money when you don't have a lot of experience, but you also shouldn't be doing too much work for free. Um, I definitely b believe that people should charge for their time. Like your time is valuable, even if you're relatively new to this. If you're asking somebody for $500 for a job, that can both feel like a lot of money and not a lot of money at the same time, de depending how it goes, depending how much time you end up spending on it, depending how good the product comes out. So what I think more young or new photographers should really consider doing is spending more time apprenticing or assisting or being a second shooter. So for example, a, gr a great place to learn is to be a second shooter on a wedding. That means you bring your own camera. You are also taking photos. Please try not to screw them up. But in the end, the job is is mostly still on the senior photographer. Like they are the one that will, you know, they'll really get the credit for the job. They will get a lot more money than you and they'll pay you something out of it. But if you miss a critical moment, it's not the end of the world because someone else was on it. Um, if you screw up your exposure for three minutes because you're on a different setting and you didn't realize it, the other photographer probably has your back. So it can be a, a much safer environment to start to learn than, uh, you know, kind of charging too little for your services and also possibly risking under uh, delivering to the client. So Michael Overbeck asks, what upgrades would Sony have to make for you to consider choosing it as your full-time camera? The, the biggest thing that I'm still running into on the a7 III is responsiveness issues. This, this is what totally killed it for me on the a7R2 is it was just too slow. Like taking photos, then I'd have to wait way too long to actually see them or to review them or for my camera not to lock up. A lot of those issues have gotten better. The camera doesn't lock up as much, but it still does a little bit. The worst offense now is that when I turn the dials, there is often a, a very noticeable delay before the setting starts to change. So for example, if I'm at f2.8 and I want my aperture to go to four, I spin the dial once, you know, it's an amount that I feel like this would go to f4. I, I reliably know that's how the dial performs. And I do that spin and nothing happens. It still says 2.8. 
So I spin it again. And now all of a sudden it's jumped up to eight. Um, I, I, it's, it's gone way past what I wanted and I have to go back down still dealing with some of those delays. I don't know why the, it's not as responsive as it should be, as other cameras can be. Like This doesn't seem like it should be the biggest obstacle for Sony to deal with, but little things like that still happen all the time, and it is maddening. Um, that's just one thing. There are a bunch of little performance details I could complain about, but uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'll do a fuller review of the a7 III someday. All right, this, one, this one I just thought was really interesting that it would be a question to be asked. So uh, Aziz asks, is the 1DX2 a perfect camera? I, I'm just surprised that people would look at there being perfect cameras. Like, first of all, let's clear it up. There is absolutely no such thing as a perfect camera. I would not rather have the 1DX2 than the 5D Mark IV. Um, most of all, it's enormous. It would be a huge inconvenience for me to carry that around and it would give me no real benefit. Like, there's nothing additional. It would be, um, it, it wouldn't make me work any differently. I would still rather be using the Sony for my video. Uh, its megapixel count is a little low. Uh, you know, I think some clients would notice the difference. I think it's not quite enough for certain jobs. But of course, it's an amazing camera. Like, I love the 1D series. I've, I've used them a lot in the past, but not so much anymore, basically because the 5D caught up and it covers my needs better. So the point of all this is just that, like, there's a perfect camera for you, maybe, and usually it always feels like you're still searching for it, but there is no perfect camera for everybody. That never has existed, and I don't expect ever will exist. We all just need and want different things, and unfortunately, usually what we feel like we need and want is the next camera that we don't own yet, which is why we keep talking about them and buying new ones. Dr. Two asks... Are we ever going to come to a point where smartphone cameras completely replace digital SLRs? Uh, no, not that's absolutely not going to happen. The, the biggest reason is just physics. Like the way that optics work, size matters, like physical size of how big a lens is, how big a sensor is, and the distance from each other. All those things totally change what the image looks like. And uh, yeah, th there's just no, there's no reason for a phone to take away SLRs. There may come a point where they become more and more of a, like only for professionals type of tool where less mainstream consumers are, are buying SLRs because you can get enough performance out of your cell phone, but it will always be the professional's choice. Um, and obviously I, I am saying that about digital SLRs. I do not mean DSLRs. I mean, um, large format digital cameras. So that obviously includes mirrorless and anything like it. I had a lot of people asking about the Pixel 3. I don't have one, so I'm not going to give an opinion on it from what I've seen. Hey, looks looks nice. I'm, I'm so happy with my iPhone XS that I've just kind of not been interested, but I'm sure the Pixel 3 camera looks great, so I hope to try it someday. Iron Nano asks, what is your greatest fear losing everything you have now? And that's phrased slightly confusingly, but it reminded me of something that I spent a lot of time thinking about when I was younger, especially. I would go through these thought experiments of, okay, what is the worst realistic scenario for my life? Like, what is not completely unlikely that totally could happen to put me in the worst possible situation? And I just start making a mental list of, you know, uh, 
all of my stuff could be stolen and I could lose my job and all of my friends desert me and, you know, and I, and I don't have a place to live for a while. That would be pretty shitty. I'm not going to lie. It would be, it'd be awful. You know, I, I would be really unhappy about it, but what it, it brought me to realize is that if I got to that situation, even if, you know, all my, all my gear was stolen, so I couldn't do new photography, I would still have the basic skill set that I do now and the knowledge that I have, and I would be able to build something new. Even if, like, let's say it got even slightly worst case scenario and I lost something really critical, like my vision, I have enough interests that I can always find something to be interested and excited about and start working on a new project. And so in the end, what I realized after I'd think through this is that I can always pull through any of these situations because what really matters is the resources that are internal to me, not the physical resources that I've accumulated. Like I'm, I'm going to be able to do a great job because I know that I can and, and not because of what I own at all. Um, you know, the, for an even simpler example, just like strip away all my gear, it all gets um, stolen with, with no insurance. Like that's not a, uh, well, I, I am insured, but let's say it, um, I don't know. So just something happens. I do not have any of my equipment anymore. That totally happens to people. I, I know of photographers and filmmakers that that has happened to, and y- you can make it work. You know, you rent gear for the jobs that you're getting and then uh, start saving up for your gear again. And you just live frugally in between. I think it's good to think through this stuff because some people can become so paralyzed by the fear of it happening that they'll start to make all their decisions to avoid it. But it can be worth confronting it and become comfortable um, so that it isn't a fear anymore, so that it's more just something you realize you could deal with if it came to it. Is the iPhone XS worth it for the hefty price tag? This is asked by Visual Snaps. I got to answer this in a very general way. Things being worth it or not is entirely dependent on your situation. So this depends on how much money you have, how much money you make from the thing you're contemplating buying, how much time do you spend on it, and then how much time are you going to save by using it. Uh, You know, there are just so many factors that are completely dependent on you as a person, the work that you do, the resources you have available. You know, a common example is people... I, I've seen a lot of videos of people that bought a red camera, you know, or, or just high-end video cameras, and then sold them. And they had this feeling that, like, I've reached a certain point in my career that I deserve to have a really premium camera. I get that feeling all the time. I want to talk myself into spending too much money on a nice camera. But in my situation, I travel a lot, and I always kind of know that getting something that heavy wouldn't come with me very often, and it would cause a lot of problems. So, it's totally dependent on my situation. I have to weigh those things. So uh, when it comes to the iPhone XS or anything else, I can't answer that for you. And neither can any YouTuber. I know it's a common phrase to say, like, is is this worth it? Is, is it worth it to purchase it? And they can't answer it for you. You got to figure that out yourself. You got to look at the specs, look at the performance, see if it works for you. All right, a few more. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to do some of these quickly. Uh, this comes from Dude Man Guy Five. Dude, Dude Man Guy Five. Uh, do you ever wish you were into anything besides photography uh, slash tech? If so, what? 
And then there's clarification. And that last question wasn't saying you're not just wondering professionally. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I've always said that I wish I was better at, at music. I, um, the, the things that I'm interested in, I've had kind of an inverse relationship of success to how much I'm interested in it. So the thing, the thing I kind of love most or feel the most direct connection to is music. And I've always been pretty bad at it. Uh, you know, tried to play guitar and drums and, and piano and all these things. And I could barely fumble by, but I never got you know, good at any of them. But it was the thing I liked the most. Then after that came film and, and video. And um, I've, I've been doing that more and more as part of my career lately. But the thing that really took off was photography, which was actually my least interest. Um, I, you know, For example, I have never looked at a photo and wanted to cry or started to cry. And that can definitely happen from film and music. They you know, absolutely can directly tap into something deeper inside me and, and kind of like grab my guts and turn them around. Uh, and photography doesn't have that effect. But I, I, I like photography. That's not to, to diss it. I'm just saying... Uh, you know, I like the other ones more. And photography is still kind of my main gear uh, gig. So, but you know, that's just the way it is. Uh, and yeah, there are, honestly, there are so many things that I'm into. I spread myself too thin. It's kind of a bad decision. Thailand CCB asks, do you ever have a hard time trying not to compare yourself to other creators? Yeah. I mean, I, I think we all do this. I especially have a hard time looking at other people that are the most similar to me. Like if the type of work they create reminds me of myself, but they're doing a better job of it, that can be hard. That can be discouraging. And depending on your mood, it can also be encouraging. I find this really is however you come to it, like the the perspective you bring to it is what shapes your attitude towards other great work. And I definitely go through different moods. Sometimes it's really inspiring. I see work from somebody that's brand new. They just picked up a camera and I'm like, that's amazing. That's, you know, better than what I'm doing. And that can suddenly make me feel like I got to go pick up my camera and and do something to, no, I was going to say compete. That's not really the word, but, you know, uh, kind of respond to uh, this creative urge or it can, uh, you know, just drag you down, make you feel like crap. But try not to let it do that. You know, I, I also definitely look at things less when I feel that way about them. If somebody's work consistently makes me feel bad, even though they are talented, I don't keep going back to them. I look at the people that get me excited, even if their work may not seem to relate to what I do as much. Dylan Mitchell asks, what made you start doing your Instagram specific style vlogs? First, I was just recording them using the story mode, kind of like vlogs. So, uh, you know, I'd record each shot to be a little bit shorter and possibly even have a tie into the next shot and, you know, just shoot the way a vlog would be. But the little loading times in between stories made me realize it looked like crap when you watch that. Um, That hasn't gotten any better yet. Um, Those like hiccups really interrupt the flow so then I started looking around for just easy ways to to shoot and edit on my phone. I experimented a few times with different, uh, like just shooting with the camera, then editing it together as soon as I could afterwards. But I often found I was a little too late with that. So then it, it really just came together when I was at um, Apple. Apple put together this little um, like 
private media event. By by media, I mean all the people there were media creators, and they were sort of teaching us different content creation techniques. This is an uh, early episode of the podcast, and I went into some of the things that they kind of taught us in these like little training sessions. And the developer from Spark Camera was there, and as soon as he showed me what his app did, I was like, oh, yeah, this is this is what I've been looking for, is a way to just shoot and edit all in the same place and yeah, the, the technology kind of gave me the solution, and then I just started doing it. Jackson H. Visuals asks, do you have a crazy dream guest, meaning for the podcast? I don't know why I picked this question, because I don't have anything in mind. Um, all the people I have as dream guests won't seem that crazy ambitious to you. Like, I, I don't really worry too much or get too excited about having mainstream media successes on the show. I want to have other independent creators that I really respect and love their work. And somehow I've already been fortunate enough to do that a few times. Um, you know, I, I just I just really want to talk to the other people in my situation that I have a ton of respect for and I really love the work that they do. So, no, I'm not going to name any names of who I would like to have on the show. If it happens, it happens. I'll, I'll just, you know, put good vibes out there. Hope that someday it does. And uh, it'd be great if you put good vibes out there, too. If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend about it or leave a review in iTunes. I don't know if that actually makes a difference anymore, but mostly just like just tell somebody, tell them, uh, you know, there's there's a little bit of value here in the Stallman podcast. Maybe you can get better at creating things. That's all that I'm trying to do. So thanks for listening, guys. Talk to you next time.